just grateful for you being here today. And uh, that's all a great lead-in to today's topic as we continue now in message number seven of our Rethink series. And uh, today we're continuing to ask the questions that matter. And today's question is, what is the church? Now that word is misunderstood in countless numbers of ways. And therefore, that word is misapplied. And we actually end up as believers, as, as Christians, thinking about the church in a totally inappropriate way. And so uh, even uh, as we start this morning, just to illustrate this, I want to give you a multiple choice quest quiz on what are some commonly held definitions of the church. And I've got six here. A, it's the beautiful buildings, sacred buildings sometimes. Uh, B, the various denominations that are all over the place. C, the Vatican. There are many people who believe that's it. The service that we attend on Sundays, like we're going to church. The people who attend the worship services. And F, the pastors and the members. Now, what if I told you that the correct answer to this multiple choice quiz is none of the above? That, I hope, will stir you to see things freshly this morning, to see things in a new light. And as we can come to that truth together, uh, I believe we can transform, uh, even in this time of COVID, we can transform uh, the effectiveness of the church by bringing into line our understanding with what Jesus had in mind. So today's message is going to be in three parts. The first thing I'm going to do is talk about what Jesus actually said about the church. And then once we get a hold of that, the second part of the message would be, okay, so if that's true, what are the signs of a Jesus church? What should we see if it is a Jesus church? And then thirdly, application. Okay, how are we, how are you and I going to be the church as Jesus designed it? All right? So let me pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, which helps us clarify, helps us see, helps us uh, understand what you had in mind. But also, Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, because the word without the Spirit, Lord, uh, is only the word. But with the Spirit, it is the fullness of what you intended. So I pray that you would speak to each of us today. And as we grow in our revelation of what the church is, that you would then transform each and every one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 13. And I'm going to start this morning with what Jesus said. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to the time and the place, very important, and the place where Jesus first used the word church. And we're going to see what happened and see what he had in mind when he launched this word uh, to describe what he was building and what that specific word actually means. So let me read the text, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 16. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, what, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The very words of God here. And as we think about this, let me help you get situated. All right? So the disciples have taken a 40-mile hike north all the way virtually to the border of Lebanon. Okay? And they've done that over super hilly country. Think the Appalachian Trail. Okay? 40 miles up. Uh, into this area called Caesarea Philippi. And as I said, we're at the, the Lebanese border. Now let me show you a picture of what this geography looks like. In this picture, you see this giant mountain range. Well, at the very top of the picture, you'll see a snow-covered peak. It's kind of hard to see, but you can see it up there. That is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is most likely the place where Jesus will have his transfiguration and that's the, actually the next episode in Matthew's Gospel. I'm not going to talk about that today, but that's Mount Hermon, and that mountain is at about 10 to 12,000 feet, depending what part of it you're standing on. It comes all the way down into Caesarea Philippi. You can see at the very bottom of the picture, there's kind of a, a cliff, a limestone cliff that looks a little bit yellow uh, or beige in that picture, and this, the, the city of Caesarea Philippi was right at the bottom there in front of that big cliff. And you see the road leading into it there, modern day. So Caesarea Philippi was built by Herod's son, Philip, to honor the Caesar, all right, to honor uh, Caesar Tiberius. Now, Caesarea, that, it was Caesarea Philippi, and there was another Caesarea built by Herod to honor the other emperor, that was Caesarea Maritima. That's why there's kind of two names. So at the very foot of this mountain, there's a huge Roman city that fed off the springs because right now, the, right there, the, the, the snow is melting and the springs are coming out of the ground. And right there at the bottom of the picture, that's where the Jordan River starts. So this next picture is like an artist's conception of what we've found uh, in archaeology and what it would have looked like. And it's a famous luxury Roman resort with, uh, fed by these pure springs. And it is a long way for 12 young Orthodox Jewish boys to this place because this is a center of pagan worship. So literally, next picture, right at that cliff, uh, we see uh, these temples that are built right into the cliff the one on the left is the Temple of Pan. Pan is the man-goat god. So think of the man with the goat body, the man's uh, chest and head. That was the god Pan. Uh, that's where we get the word pandemonium. And literally, pandemonium means all the demons. Okay? So this is what this place was. Lots of worship. They would sacrifice goats. Uh, they would dance with the goats. It was insane. So, Jesus is literally taking his boys on a field trip into the heart of wickedness, into the heart of pagan worship. 
And here, Jesus is going to preach to the crowds. This is his famous sermon where he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and have the luxury resort if he loses his soul? And so we know that Jesus preached to the crowds here. We don't think he got very close to these things, but maybe he was up on the cliff at the top looking down over all of it. We don't know. But here, uh, he's teaching his boys how to preach the gospel to the pagan world. He's preparing them for the assignment they're going to have later on. And so he's teaching them, uh, and so he's speaking to his disciples in response to what Peter just said. So we'll continue on in Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, he's saying here that, yes, Simon, you got the answer right, but you didn't come up with that. My Father gave that to you. So in other words, back to last week's message, you need to be born again from above. You need to have revelation that God has shown you that Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus is repeating that. And then he says, uh, and I tell you, Peter. Now, the word for Peter there is Petros. That's Little Rock. Or if he was around today, we would call him Rocky. All right, that's Little Rock. On the Little Rock, you Little Rock, Peter, are going to confess this big rock. This big rock is, as Isaiah said in chapter 26, the rock eternal. This is who Jesus is. So on that confession of who Jesus is, he then says, I will build my church. You know, anybody who wants to build the church needs to be reminded that's not their job. Jesus' job is to build the church. Our job is to follow him. And then he uh, says that the people who do this, the people who make this confession are going to be in my church. They're going to be in, in my body, the people that I am calling out of darkness. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, the central quality of this church, this Jesus church, is that it will not be overcome by the gates of Hades. Now, as he's preaching and he's overlooking and there's this bloody dancing going on and this pagan worship going on, cult prostitutes, temple prostitutes, awful scene of debauchery in front of him. He is essentially saying that none of this is going to overcome my church. And he says, he uses a term, the gates of Hades. Well, the gates of Hades in this next picture were where that temple of Pan was. There was a, a grotto. And that grotto had a uh, had a uh, steel uh, or iron mesh over it because they would walk out and squeeze the blood of the sacrifices into that thing, and they, that was called the gates of hell. So Jesus is literally standing over this pagan, this pagan situation with his disciples, bringing them into the heart of darkness, and that is where, that is where he declares that he's going to build a church. Now, C.T. Studd, the famous British uh, evangelist, said, 
got, I believe, got his inspiration from this very moment because he said in his, in his uh, uh, song, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop a yard from hell. And that's exactly what Jesus had done. He had brought his boys to a yard from hell, and he said there that he's going to build his church that brings the good news of the kingdom that we studied last week into the darkness, into the chaos, into the, the things that the enemy has taken. And he is teaching his boys that we're going to take back what the enemy has done and we are going to reclaim what belongs to the king. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. And that is the picture, that is the place, that is the situation where Jesus launched his church. So Jesus is launching the church and he's using a word and he's, it's just like the word gospel that we studied last week. The, the word gospel last week was a, was a, uh, 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 a Greco-Roman term for uh, legal or military or geopolitical victories, announcements of the good news, of how the emperor was making everything wonderful. Well, Jesus repurposed that word for the good news of the kingdom. Now he's repurposing this other Greek word, and that Greek word is ekklesia. Can you say that? Ekklesia. All right. That word, prior, its prior meaning, before Jesus began to repurpose it here in Matthew 16, was a gathering of people called out from their homes into an assembly, usually in the public square. So Jesus is repurposing a word that it's actually in the New Testament in the sense of what it used to be called. And we can see this in Acts chapter 19. It says here, the city clerk quieted the crowd. And this is in Ephesus, where Paul's in Ephesus. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, and then he goes on, about this assembly, and he's saying it must be settled in a legal assembly, a legal ecclesia. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting. There's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly, the ecclesia. So, unfortunately, ecclesia suffered from several translation dynamics, it would take me too long to explain it to you, that leave us with the word church which to most people means the buildings or the worship service, I'm going to church, etc. But the better English options are, I'm going to join the assembly, I'm going to join the congregation, I'm going to join the gathering or the community or the fellowship. So we've, we've kind of missed the point. And uh, in, in this verse from Acts 11, you can see uh, how it's supposed to be used. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him, to the, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, met with the ecclesia, and taught great numbers of people. They equipped them, and they became disciples, and the disciples of the church of Antioch, that's where they were first called Christians, people of Christ, all right? So you would not attend uh, a church meeting in these days if you were not someone who understood the gospel of the kingdom, who had repented, 
who had been delivered of demons, who had been baptized, and uh, who had been trained enough to know what it means to be part of the church. We have skipped a lot of the... We try not to skip them here, but overall, the church in America has skipped all these steps. And we've got everybody in the room. It includes the church, those that are born again, and it includes visitors and other people who do not are not born again. And that makes for a super complicated reality of, of our church meetings today. But we literally have come to the place where, yeah, bring your friends and the pastor will tell them the gospel. That's not how it was originally. Originally, it was the church telling people the gospel and then training them and then baptizing them, delivering them, and then bringing them to a church meeting. So you see, we've lost so much. So what did Jesus really mean? Well, literally, he means instead of being called out of your homes into an assembly, he's saying, I'm going to call you out of darkness into a born-again existence with me. That's the church. That's what ecclesia means. So to sum up this first part of the message, what did Jesus actually mean by the word church? This is what, this is what I would say is the summary of the verses I've shown you so far this morning. It is one global body of born-again, spirit-filled disciples who confess Jesus as Messiah and who are overcoming the enemy and the world and all evil. They gather in local groups like they did in Antioch to love each other sacrificially, to grow in truth and grace, and equip one another to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in enemy territory. We are in enemy territory. This is not the promised land, right? The promised land is eternity and the new heaven and the new, new earth. So we're here to proclaim the gospel in the territory that Satan is occupying and to bring that. So we are to bring the gospel into the chaos and bring that. So a couple of things to notice about this definition is, first of all, if you're not born again, if you cannot speak to a, a moment when you were born again, I encourage you to watch last week's message on the gospel of the kingdom. You absolutely must understand that before you can hope to understand what the church is. But if you haven't, I want to proclaim that gospel to you right now that you can emigrate out of the darkness into the kingdom of light if you will turn to Jesus, confess your sin, repent and turn from your sin, and receive what he did on the cross for you, and then be filled with his spirit. Now, for all of that to and baptized, for all of that to happen, you need to understand more clearly. I don't have time to review it today. Read, just listen to last week's message because this is the must-have to be part of the church. All right? Now, so if all that is true, then we see what Jesus really had in mind. Then what should a Jesus church look like? What signs will mark a Jesus church? Part two of the message. I got four signs that I want you to see uh, that mark a Jesus church. Okay? You tracking with me? All right. So number one, uh, the first sign is that Jesus is worshipped and obeyed as supreme. There's nothing higher than Jesus. 
Jesus is our confession. Jesus is in our songs. Jesus uh, is being read. The words of Jesus are being read in the church, in the gathering of the ecclesia. The, Jesus is in the homes. Jesus is in the small groups. Jesus is in the cars and the vans back and forth to school. Jesus is on the phone. Jesus is in our emails. Jesus is being spoken to our neighbors. Jesus is everything. He's worthy of all of our attention. He's worthy of all our effort, all our praise, all our honor, all our glory. Can I, can I get an amen? amen. Okay, that's, that's the sign of a true Jesus church, number one sign. And this is appropriate because as Paul talks about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. This is a body, uh, a worldwide body of believers. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That is, he's the first to be raised from the dead in resurrection. And he, that's the beginning of the new creation. That's the beginning of eternal life so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So he is number one all the time. That's a sign of a Jesus church. This was very clearly communicated to the city of Cincinnati on July 11th when 60 churches representing six to 7,000 worshipers walked, prayed, blessed police officers, blessed the city, and worshiped the number one king. That, that was a picture of a Jesus church right there. Now, that's number one. Number two, what is a number two sign that will mark a Jesus church? Truth and love will pervade the community. Truth and love will pervade the community. So Paul, writing to his pastor protege, Timothy, talks about the truth that the church has, which is the scriptures, the revelation, the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is how life is built on a solid foundation. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So the church carries from the Lord himself the pillar and the foundation of the truth. This is the scriptures. This is the Holy Spirit that is residing in us. And this is the plumb line for a life well lived. This is the foundation for a life well lived. If you don't have the plumb line, it's crooked. If you don't have the foundation, it will collapse. And Paul is reminding Timothy of this and to make it clear how the church should function and live. And that truth often is hard. And we have to adjust. God is not adjusting himself to us. We are adjusting ourselves to God through the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So John the Apostle writes to his friend Gaius, who's leading another church somewhere, and he says this, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. By the way, we have no greater joy than to partner with you as parents for your children to walk in the truth. To see Bailey up here this morning reading the word, like super encouraging because uh, there's no junior Holy Spirit. 
these young people are walking in the truth and they are being built up by the church, by the youth group, but they, the children and the youth are actually carrying the good news of the kingdom. They are walking in the truth. This is part of what we want to do as we partner with you in raising up your families. Now, dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. So some strangers had come into Gaius's church. They were believers. They had been treated well. They came back and they told John and his church, maybe the church in Ephesus, but this church that Gaius is leading is walking in the truth and that is prompting love. Truth and love are connected and a church that is marked with the presence of Jesus is dealing with truth no matter how difficult it is and it is walking in love where you can feel the presence and the love of Christ uh, in all the believers where people are loved and known. So that means you need to be known uh, in a Jesus church. So, so much of MCC, uh, I believe, is pointing to this, maybe even doing well, but our preschool oozes with love. Our family shop oozes with love and truth. Our preschool is teaching the children entrusted to us the truths about Jesus. And this kind of love and truth was manifested this week when Madison Place Community Church sent 30-plus people over here, and here's the picture of some of them just having lunch together. They brought them here to serve us and uh, encourage us in our community, uh, and they also did a ton of cleaning and painting, and you'll notice that they've fixed up this cross back here so you don't have light blaring around me. Um, all these things they've done are, are just a blessing to us. So that's truth and love. Number three, the Spirit-led sense of mission. God is coming. Jesus is coming with his kingdom, and he has put us on mission. Dave and Rebecca have reminded us of this this morning. Here is the church of Antioch, which is in modern-day eastern Turkey near the border of Syria. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, true of Marymount Church, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We have sent Dave and Rebecca, and uh, we've sent many others. This church has a spirit of Antioch uh, in our city, in our region, in Mexico, in Israel, in Nigeria, in South Africa, Indonesia, other places around the world. And this, this is our heart. Our heart is to leave the building. That's why our T-shirts that we print say, the church has left the building. We want to and just remind people of this truth, whether it's prayer walks, Thanksgiving meals, uh, working and partnering with Whole Again to feed the children this summer in the city, uh, local families being helped, uh, and, and this is an area, church, we need to grow in. We have a wonderful international footprint, but we need to grow in our impact here in the local community. That's number three. There's got to be a sense of mission, and uh, it is wonderful 
to send someone and then to have them come back like Dave and Rebecca did and trained us yesterday on making disciples. So in all of this mission work, it's a, it's a, it's a two-way street. It's a mutually transforming relationship. Amen? So number four, uh, whether we're a family, an army, a hospital, a kitchen, which is part of what the church is, uh, and also whether we're at rest or not, all the time, sign number four, is a joyful security, identity, and destiny. We have this sense that these things are settled. They are settled that we are children of the king. They are settled that we are secure in him and we have a destiny in eternity with him. Therefore, stock market roller coasters do not affect a Jesus church. Elections and all the chaos that surrounds that do not affect a Jesus church. COVID-19, yes, it constrains some things, but it does not affect who we are in our security, identity, and destiny. And protests, you name it, all of it does not affect a true Jesus church. Nothing shakes us because we are his demonstration project. Let me read you Ephesians 3. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church is a demonstration by God to the wicked forces in the heavenly realms, all the demons and everything, all evil, that he has accomplished his purposes. So the church, when people say, you know, there were protests downtown, couldn't see the church, where's the church? Well, first of all, I can guarantee you the church was there. I don't know who it was, but I can guarantee you the church was there. But also, the idea of complaining about the church is absurd because if God took the church right now out of the city of Cincinnati, it would fall into total chaos. And that's true of every city in the world. The church is salt and light. Jesus didn't say, when you work hard, you will be salt and light. He said, you are salt and light. So we see that this complaining about the church and people want to please other people, we are not here to please people we're here to please Jesus. And what I'm trying to tell you today is that the church is his wife. He's very picky about his wife. And the church is the church because he has said so. And the church is going to overcome all of evil because he said so. That's the word of God, guys. That's how it is. So when a Black Lives Matter leader, Sean King, says, all the white churches in America should close, we say that's totally absurd. That is totally absurd. That is why Black Lives Matter, which is a line we agree with in our hearts, is not an appropriate movement. It's not constructive. It's not moving in the things of God. That's why I love that Chanel Stevens started her effort to make this a godly thing when she made up the signs, black lives are valued. I have one on my lawn. Because that communicates 
what the Lord Jesus says about our African-American brothers and sisters and what is true about them. Uh, and so, and it also separates us from this nonsense that is uh, simply bent on destruction. So one way God has helped me to joyfully embrace uh, my security, my identity, and my destiny is my friendship with Tracy Ventus and New Mission because we trust Jesus to guide us. We trust Jesus to help us avoid unbiblical solutions and strategies to the challenges of racism, and we walk in love together. And I can tell you right now, we're not segregated. We may have different church meetings with different styles of preaching. Uh, one day when I grow up, I hope to be able to preach like Tracy. But we have different music and different things. But we have one blood and one heart. And we're walking with Jesus together. And that, the gates of hell are not going to overcome that. And so our security, our identity, our destiny is covered and guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. The, the writer to the Hebrews said it this way, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the med mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen? That's our security, identity, and destiny. It is done, folks. Jesus said it's finished. And we are the church, and we are one church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome what Jesus is building. And lastly, let's move to part three, because now I want to bring it home into application. We got to be the church. We cannot outsource spiritual responsibilities. Uh, we cannot be consumers of spiritual goods and services. This is completely unhealthy, and it is not the design of the church. And part of the reason is, is that there's a mentality of a promised land church, that you've arrived, you're in the promised land now, uh, you can kick back, we've got great music, we've got great programs, we've got great everything, and that is not where we are. We are not in the promised land. We are actually in exile. So this is not our home. Where we're heading is heaven, new heaven, new earth. This is temporary. This is not home. So don't bank on this world. Do not bank on this world. Your future is better, way better. And so... Um, what we are is we are in exile. And an exilic church depends desperately on the presence of God. We cannot make programs. We cannot make things. We cannot do anything in our own power, only by the Spirit. So we trust and need and depend on the presence of God. And then we bring our gifts and we bring all we've got uh, to love and serve one another and to live out those four marks of a Jesus church that I shared earlier. So the, uh, there's a guy named Mark Laberton who wrote a book called Called. And he talks about this promised land church and exilic church. And here's how he said it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's the German, uh, the German pastor, said that one of the first things we need to do is let our expectations of one another in the body of Christ and of the church die. 
only then can we begin to find God as the source of our common life, a communion that only God can create or sustain. Promised land churches offer you everything. An exilic community offers much less and invites you to bring all you can to the community itself. Church, I see progress through COVID-19. I see moms and dads being the priests of their families. I see students stepping up into uh, the, the work and life of the church. I see Bible reading going on in our homes. I see uh, salvation happening in our homes. We had a family tell us about one of their children uh, walking into Christ, and hopefully we will have a baptism on that in the next few weeks. I see communion. I see families gathering together and loving on each other. Uh, so this is, we need to keep pushing the boundaries, folks. We need to keep bringing the gospel into our communities, into our neighborhoods, into our co-workers, into our extended families. So I'm going to call the worship team up, and I'm going to challenge you as we finish now this morning uh, that uh, there's a lot to be thankful for. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is a gathering of the born again. The church is learning to love and bless each other. And that's happening across our city with the, the prayer walk, with churches collaborating together. Uh, and we are the church in exile, folks. So what does that mean? It means that we are called to walk into that. How are you going to be the church this week? Let me give you some challenges here. Number one, start a prayer meeting in your home. Just start praying, asking God to reveal himself, to reveal what the church is, to show you the neighborhood, to show you the people that he wants you to minister to, to be the church to. Invite people to read the Bible with you. As soon as people get into the truth, like I've only shown you five or six scriptures today, but those scriptures, like, I mean, just read them and, and you know what the church is and you know how mistaken we've been about the church. Same thing with every other subject in life. Read the Bible, get into the truth, share the gospel, the three, the three circles that Jamie and I have been sharing with you over the last year. Make meals, help people move, visit the sick, invite someone to live with you, uh, start a small group. You know, last week we were, two weeks ago, we were walking in our neighborhood and praying and a woman was sitting on her front porch and she was in tears. I didn't notice her, but Marianne did. She walked up to her and asked her what was going on. She told her she'd lost her job, her life was in chaos, and she basically uh, prayed, Marianne prayed for her. And uh, this lady uh, found a job in Pennsylvania. She's moving out just two days ago. We were walking by, and she, the moving van was there. Marianne went in and uh, said hello, uh, prayed with her, followed up uh, and encouraged her. And um, we don't know where that's going to go. She's not here anymore, but she was loved and the church was on the move. And that's our vision. So as you go into communion after this response song of worship, I want you to discuss how is your family going to be the church 
this week. I've given you some ideas. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let's celebrate communion. And Father, we thank you. We praise you that you have opened our eyes to what the church is, that you have stationed us here a yard from hell, that we get to bring the good news. And so, Lord, move among us. Have your way, Jesus. We love you and we worship you. And the church agreed and said, amen. Let's worship the king.